How's it going, everybody? You're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and this is another themed episode of Random Fact Dumps. I know I'm pushing out a lot of these, but these are really fun for me to do, and I hope you guys are enjoying them. More specifically, this is uh, part three of Random Fact Dumps Music Edition. Now, before I go any further, this episode of The Raven's Grove features the following warnings. Uh, Space mentions, danger mentions, cult mentions, murder mentions, death mentions, including prenatal death mentions, and prison mentions. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Right, now those are out of the way, let's get this show on the road. So, our first fact may not seem to be about music, but bear with me. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, folks, and assume that most of you have at least heard of the Apollo Space Program. For those of you who haven't heard of it, or may be too young to know about it, here's a Cliff Notes version. In 1961, John F. Kennedy, the President of the USA at the time, challenged his country to have a successful manned mission to the moon with a safe return to Earth. Thus, the Apollo missions began at NASA. The stream of JFKs was finally achieved in 1969 on July 20th with the first manned lunar landing by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin of the Apollo 11 mission. However, the mission dubbed Apollo 13 had a very different story. Apollo 13 was the seventh crewed mission in the Apollo program and was the third mission intended to land on the moon. The craft was launched from Kennedy Space Center on April 11, 1970, but the lunar landing was aborted after an oxygen tank in service module failed two days into the mission. The crew instead looped around the moon in a circumlunar trajectory and returned safely to Earth on April 17th. The mission was commanded by Jim Lovell, with Jack Swigert as command module pilot and Fred Hayes as lunar module pilot. Swigert was a late replacement for Ken Mattingly, who was grounded after an exposure to rubella. Now, a routine stir of an oxygen tank while they're in space ignited damaged wire insulation inside it, causing an explosion that vented the contents of both the service module's oxygen tank and the, well, both, both of the service module's oxygen tanks, my bad, into space. Without oxygen, needed for breathing and for generating electrical power, the service module's propulsion and life support systems could not operate. Command module systems had to be shut down to conserve its remaining resources for re-entry, forcing the crew to transfer into, into the lunar module to act as a lifeboat. With the lunar landing cancelled, uh, mission controllers worked to bring the crew home alive. Although the lunar module was designed to support two men on the lunar surface for two days, the mission controller in Houston uh, improvised new procedures so it could support three men for four days. The crew experienced incredible hardships caused by limited power, a chilly and wet cabin, and a shortage of usable water. This was the critical need to adapt the command module's cartridges for the carbon dioxide scrubber system to work in the lunar module. The crew's mission and crew and mission controllers were actually successful in providing a solution to that, by the way. The astronauts' peril briefly renewed in public interest in the Apollo program, and tens of millions of people watched the splashdown in the South Pacific Ocean on TV. An investigative review board found the uh, fault in the pre-flight testing of the oxygen tank in the Teflon placed inside it. The board recommended changes, including minimizing the use of potential combu- potentially combustible items inside the tank, which was actually dumped for Apollo 14. Now, this was all established fact. Okay, if you've seen the film Apollo 13, which I would highly recommend, it's a great film, you know all of this. This is one of the biggest stories about space exploration from the Apollo era. 
But what many people may not know is that there is actually a very clear link between the Apollo 13 mission and the band Tenacious D. See, one of the key people in, in the ground crew and mission controllers uh, involved in the Apollo 13 mission in rescuing them was an aerospace engineer called Judith Love Cohen. Now, Cohen worked on the Minuteman missile system. She'd worked on the science ground station for the Hubble telescope, the data and tracking relay satellite, and she was a key figure in the rescue attempt for the Apollo 13 astronauts. However, she actually went into labor during the Apollo 13 rescue attempt, and being an absolute badass, took a printout of the problem she was working on to the hospital with her while being in labor. She called the boss from the hospital to uh, tell her that she had solved the problem, and then gave birth to Jack Black. Yes, that Jack Black, the musician, comedian, active voice actor, and YouTuber. After retiring from aerospace engineering, Cohen went on to found a children's multimedia company and published more than 20 titles before her death in 2016. That is incredible. And honestly, you have struggled to find a better example of uh, women in aerospace engineering than her, in my opinion. Like, there are some amazing women scientists out there, I'm not going to deny that, but Julius Love Cohen is pretty high up on my list. So, yeah, she's badass. Now, facts 2, 3, and 4 are about one of my all-time favorite shows, Metalocalypse. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the show or may never, never have heard of it, Metalocalypse was an animated TV show on Adult Swim chronicling the adventures of the world's greatest metal band known as Death Clock, spelled D-E-T-H-K-L-O-K, yeah, who are amazing musicians, but utterly hopeless at literally everything else in life. It went for four seasons on Adult Swim, and apparently has been greenlit for a full-length animated movie, but given the COVID-19 pandemic and the writer's guild strike, which at the time of this recording is still in effect, the movie is basically in development hell, if it has even still been greenlit. It may have been cancelled, I don't know. But what, fact number two is, what many people may not know is that Metalocalypse has a roster of guest voice actors that is well and truly star-studded. For example, Mike Hamill, Mark Hamill, aka Luke Skywalker, also aka the Joker in the Batman animated series, is a regular voice actor on the show, vo voicing multiple different characters, including the primary antagonist, the chilling Mr. Salacia. However, some characters are actually voiced by rock and metal loyalty, royalty, such as the Finnish Lake Draw Muster Crackish, being voiced by the Metallica frontman James Hetfield, or the terrifying antagonist known only as the Masked Metal Assassin, being voiced by George Fisher, better known by the name Corpse Grinder, the frontman of death metal band Cannibal Corpse. These are only a few of the absolutely incredible lineup of voice actors on Metalocalypse, and if you like metal music or metal culture, I cannot recommend the show highly enough. It is, it's absolutely hilarious in the best possible way. It's over the top, it's violent, it's graphic, but at the same time, it it doesn't take itself seriously, and it's a parody, but also a very affectionate homage to that culture. So if you're interested in metal music or metal culture, I give it a try. You're not going to be disappointed. Now, fact number three is also to do with Metalocalypse, but more specifically, is to do with the animation. You see, most in most depictions of musicians on animated TV shows, the music the characters play is nearly never what is actually depicted on screen. Put simply, most animated depictions of music and musicians on animated shows are woefully inaccurate. Like, 
there's actually quite a few videos on YouTube where people will say, okay, this is what they're playing on screen. This is what it would actually sound like. And they compare the two sound qualities. And it's also really interesting to watch because they are just so radically different and they got it so badly wrong. However, Brendan Small, the creator of Metalocalypse, he was insistent that the instruments in the show are actually animated correctly, which is actually the case. Granted, there are a few mistakes here and there, but overall, the vast majority of the animation for the music played in Metalocalypse is legitimately how it would actually look to play that music in real life if you had those equipment. They also were very specific about the gear used and got permission from several major companies that do guitars, basses, drum kits. They got permission from those companies to portray those instruments accurately. And you can actually see it on the end credits of Metal Eclipse. They say, okay, sponsored by ESP guitars or Gibson guitars and that kind of thing. And it's, it's honestly really nice to see. Because a lot of the time, guitars in animated shows, they have to be these sci-fi-esque versions because they didn't get permission from the major guitar companies. So for this kind of show, to get permission, that is, honestly, it just makes me smile. I'm happy about that. Now, fact number four is also about Metalocalypse, like I mentioned, but it's actually about the impact Metalocalypse has had on the music industry as a whole. Now, you remember how I just mentioned that the creator of Metalocalypse, Brendan Small, he insisted that the animation and the instruments be accurate? Well, Brendan Small isn't just the creator of the show. He not only voices at least three or four of the main characters on the show, he is also the one playing the instruments and singing the songs in the music to the soundtrack to the show. Now, if you listen to this, the episode of this podcast on metal music and culture, you'll be familiar about how impressive this feat is. But if you haven't, well, basically, metal mu- death metal is characterized by usually, but not always, having what is known as harsh vocals and utilizing extreme technical proficiency on in the playing of the instruments, especially the guitars and the drums. And finally, having so, often having somewhat violent imagery and lyrics depicting, shall we say, the darker side of life and death. Now, I'll admit, death metal isn't for everyone. In terms of the scale of heaviness, death metal is pretty close to the top, with, in my opinion, only black metal being heavier as a general rule. I mean, to be honest, I only dabble in death metal occasionally, and my tastes in the genre are pretty restricted to three, roughly about three or four bands, maybe one or two more, give or take. I mean, generally speaking, when I listen to metal music, I listen to power metal or folk metal, and I only will occasionally listen to death metal if I'm in the right mood. However... I'm not going to deny death metal is one of the most difficult genres of metal to play purely because of the skill needed to pull it off uh, well. In any event, for one person to play most of the instruments and the singing on the show's soundtrack, that's impressive in and of itself, but it gets better. See, the creators of the show have actually released a total of four, that's right, four real-life albums so far. Three as Death Clock, one as Brendan Small, with a fifth album as Death Clock being announced in April of 2023. Now, these albums, they're just a random cash grab. They actually hold the record for the best-selling death metal albums of all time. And the music quality in these songs is just amazing. I mean, even if you don't listen to death metal, give it a try. There's actually a really great YouTube parody called Bat Metal, which is where Batman and Ro- the various Robins take on various supervillains while playing de- Death Rock songs. It's hilarious. But yeah, a death metal band that is fictional has the best-selling albums in their genre of all time. That is 
just mind-blowingly awesome for me. Now, fact number five is actually quite a fair bit darker than the normal stuff I talk about in music conditions around factums, but I thought it appropriate to include it, if only because I thought it was interesting. Now, did you know there's actually a link between one of the most influential surf rock bands of the genre and one of the most notorious cults of all time? Yeah, it's true. In 1969, Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, picked up a couple of hitchhiking girls who turned out to be in a part of the cult known as the Manson Family. Wilson became extremely good friends with the charismatic, but in my opinion, pure evil leader of the cult, Charles Manson, and like I said, was extremely close with the cult. According to Crack.com, the Manson family took over Wilson's home, he hosted new dinners with them, and they eventually took most of his money. Now... Uh, he also went on to help Manson meet music industry people, including Terry Melcher, I'll talk more about him later, and rewrote a Manson tune known as Cease to Exist as Never Learn Not to Love that the Beach Boys released as a B-side. Now, you might be wondering, who is this Terry Melcher person, and why is he important? Well, this is why the Manson family has, and Charles Manson has gone down in history as one of the most notorious cults of the 20th century. You see, like I keep saying, Manson was an occult leader, but he was also an aspiring musician. And he tried to get a contract with record lead producer Terry Melcher, who had actually rented a house who was... who Basically, the house that Melcher had rented, it was then moved into by a woman called Sharon Tate. Now, the Tate-LaBianca murders were a series of murders that were perpetrated by members of the Manson family cult during the time period between August 8th and August 10th, 1969, in Los Angeles, California, under the direction of Tex Watson and Charles Manson himself. The perpetrators killed five people on the night of August 8th to August 9th. Sharon Tate, who was, sadly, she was eight and a half months pregnant at the time, and her companions, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Wojciech Frykowski, along with Stephen Parent. The following evening, the Manson family also murdered supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary at their home in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles. Manson and the other four perpetrators were caught and initially sentenced to death, but this was changed to a sentence of life in prison, which, under California law, has the possibility of parole. This is non-negotiable. If you have life in prison, you have the, op- the possibility of parole under California law. In the years since being caught in 1969, Two of the five perpetrators, including Manson, have either died from brain cancer or from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer. The other three perpetrators, which includes two women and one man, man, have remained in prison to this day. And every time a parole hearing is held, parole has so far been denied by the California state governor. Now, like I said, that's a pretty dark topic and... I thought it was interesting, but it's also really sad. Like, the Manson family murders basically you know, spelled the end of 60s counterculture and ushered in a new wave of paranoia. In fact, there's actually a distinct link between the violence and graphic uh, 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 gruesomeness in movies that came after the Manson family murders and uh, the murders themselves because they were so highly publicized in the papers. So, it's actually called Manson Exploitation. It's definitely worth looking into if you're interested in the history of cinema, but it's also a pretty depressing topic, so just be aware. Now, finally, we actually have a more light-hearted topic for fact number six. Now, remember how I mentioned the band Campbell Corpse and its frontman, George Corpse Grinder Fisher? Well, what many people may not know, including fans of the band, is that 
Corpse Grinder is actually extremely good at crane games. Like, you know, the ones at video game arcades where you can, you move a crane around and it drops down and you can pick up toys and win prizes. Well, apparently he's absolutely phenomenal at them and not without reason. See, according to numerous sources, Corpse Grinder actually plays crane games to relax wherever camel corpse stop when they're on tour. And he's built up quite the skill level at them. And not just that, he actually then donates all the toys he wins to local toy drives and children's charities in those places where they stop. Now, whatever you may think of Campbell Corpse's music, yeah, I'm not going to deny, they are, I don't listen to them, I'm just going to put that out there right now, I know of them, and I appreciate what they've done for music, I appreciate the impact they've had, their music is a bit too heavy for me, okay, I'm, I'm not going to deny that. But that thing right there where Corpse Guy donates the toys, they wins to the ch- toy guys and charities, that is a damn decent thing to do. So Corpse Grinder, if you ever get the chance to listen to this, you keep on doing you, sir. You are a damn good person. Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to The Ravens Grove. I've been Daheem. You've been awesome. I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.